Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um... <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. You pop craze youngsters, and welcome to part three of episode 72 of Chart Music. I'm Al Needham, currently raging hard with Simon Price and David Stubbs, and the three of us are in absolutely no mood to fanny about. So, let us rejoin the episode in progress. Straight in at number 20 this week, it's Iron Maiden and Running Free. Now, here come a group that come all the way over from the States to appear with us on Top of the Pops this evening. It's their first television debut in this country. They are Cameo. They're at number 21 this week, and this is the single life. the way to do it. Straighten at number 20, says Jordan, let loose into the studio and surrounded by a smattering of the kids. He then tells us of a group that have come over all the way from America, where they make all them films and that, to make their first ever appearance on British television. It's Cameo and Single Life. Formed by Larry Blackman in New York in 1974, the New York City Players were a 14-piece funk band who were signed to Casablanca Records a year later as the Players, but were forced to change their name after the Ohio Players wagged a finger at them and tuttered. Mm. Changing their name to Cameo, after a packet of fags one of the band had bought while they were on tour in Canada, they put out the LP Cardiac Arrest in early 1977, scoring an R&B hit with a single Rigor Mortis. After being pulled into the orbit of disco, they ended up on the soundtrack of Thank God It's Friday in 1978. They go on to be a regular presence in the Billboard R&B charts throughout the early 80s, but it wouldn't be until 1984 that their label, Phonogram, decided to release anything in the UK after they sold out their debut tour over here and She's Strange got to number 37 in April of that year. 
This single, the follow-up to Attack Me With Your Love, which got to number 65 in July, is the second cut from the LP Single Life, which came out in June, but only got to number 66 in our charts. It entered the singles charts at number 47, then soared 12 places to number 35, which led to about 20 seconds of the video being played in the breaker section of Top of the Pops that week, kicking it up another 10 places to number 25. This week, it's jumped four places to number 21, and here they are for their first chance to have a slink about in the top of the pop studio. Come on in, cameo. Mm. Named after a packet of fags. If they'd have been on tour in Britain at the time, they, they could have been called Silk Cut, which is a great name for a band of their ilk. Yeah, it would be, actually. Or Rough Shag. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that would have been all right, yeah, yeah. That's more like an album track of theirs. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Do you notice that um, Paul Jordan says it's their first television debut? Like, yeah, mm. as opposed to their second television debut. What the yeah. fuck? This is exactly what I'm talking about, that I get nervous watching him. I know he's yes. really a nice bloke, but anyway, yeah. Yeah, funk expert David Stubbs, the floor is yours. Mm. Yeah, I, I love this. And I mean, you know, when I was talking about something it's happening... It's mint, isn't it? In, yeah, in Colonel Abrams. Yeah, I mean, things happen here. Yeah, this is absolute mint. There's, there's, there's no argument about it, you know. You know, they're assuming the stances. They look terrible, um, dress-wise, <laughs> but most people did in 1985. Yeah, shocking. I didn't. I, I, I was fine, but um, we'll go on to that <laughs> later on. But it's a bit like that scene in Wings of Desire when Bruno Gantz's angel goes and gets these clothes, he exchanges his suit of armour for uh, some terrible clothes that have just been randomly thrown together. So many people dressed like that in, in 1985. I mean, the, the 80s have got a fucking nerve having a laugh at the 70s, put it that yes. way. They really have. Um, yeah. You know, there's so much of that. There's a lot of that about And tonight. the late 80s, early 90s, even more so. Fucking hell. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, this I love. I mean, I get always cameos that they're a bit like Prince, but minus the sort of androgyny, the sense of gender fluidity, you know, they're, it's mm. very much an all-male thing. But no, I mean, it's a beautiful piece of music. I mean, that little sort of bass drone that you get that, that runs through it, it's kind of subtly quite wistful, really. It's like, yeah, he's living the mm. single life, but could that be the aching, mute voice of his subconscious there? You know, yeah. there's that kind of weird, mm. lovely little undercurrent going on there. Yeah. I mean, the beauty of this sort of record, it's, it's the sort of record that no no one makes anymore. And if they did, they'd make a Pharrell-sized fortune. I mean, that's what Pharrell things always specialise in, you know, making the kind of records they don't make anymore, you know. But, yeah. um, you know, I'm sure that, like, someone could absolutely clean up by just flat-out emulating this. I mean, I remember being at a barbecue hosted by this British-Jamaican family, and when this struck up, you know, everyone across the generations put down their paper plates, uh, and, you know, they got, just got right down as one. Um, yeah. You know, it was lovely. But I did interview um, Larry Blackman about 1988, Ooh. this would have been. It really wasn't my finest hour, actually. Oh, no. He was late, you know, for the interview, you know, and I was a bit peeved about that, you know, because I'm a stickler for punctuality, you know, being the old wing commander and all that. But it <laughs> wasn't the most sort of scintillating of interviews, and I think that when I kind of wrote it up, I think I was getting a bit smug. I'd been, like, a staff writer at, at Melody Maker for about a year, and felt a bit on top of the world and started, I don't know, there was a sort of slightly kind of unappealing waspishness that was creeping into my um, copy. Mm. And at one point, you know, he was talking about Tommy Jenkins 
I think he talked about how he's going to be helping in work on a Tommy Jenkins album. And yeah. I wrote something like, oh, well, good luck, whoever the hell he is. Something like that. Mm. I actually wrote that. Ooh. Now, what happened is, in those days, they had... Um, <laughs> Channel 4. They had, uh, late on Friday nights, they had a sort of what the papers say, and it was like what the music papers say. Oh, oh. no! Yeah, and Charles Shaw Murray was doing it, and he picked up on this little piece, that I, this, this thing, because I watched the bloody thing, and he picked up on this, and he said... David, Tommy Jenkins is one of Cameo. Yes. <laughs> one of the fans. Oh. It's like, oh, my fucking... Yeah. And that was a very, very properly humbling experience, you know, uh, and, and, yeah. and, and, and rightly so. You know. I mean, this is the pre-codpiece era of Cameo. Yeah. So, you know, what we're getting here is a more masculine imagination with more clothes mm. on. Uh, <laughs> you know, they've, they've stripped down from 14 to 10 to 4. Yeah. And uh, Larry Blackman is obviously the front man. Wearing a jacket that appears to have parakeets on it over a light green vest and dark green trousers. And you know, the only instrument on stage is a bass, which stays slung around the shoulder of Aaron Mills. He's, he's not going to put it down and start capering about like Ashley. Blessing. Yeah, weird choice that. Yeah, you know, this one instrument. Actually, <laughs> mm. yeah, but it's the yeah. instrument. Yeah, yeah. Just th- this track coming on at the time and this time was just like fucking yes. Just yeah. what, a, mm. what a joy. Just yeah. Nineteen eighty five is skill. Yeah, mm. I mean, I-, I think this song has kind of been obliterated a bit from people's memory by the megalithic presence of Word Up. Yes, mm. but this is the one, really. I mean, yeah. Okay, you know, she's strange had been a minor hit, but this is the one that really kind of broke them through the thing with cameo is they came out of nowhere and they didn't at the same time it's yeah. like you used to see their records in the racks i remember my dad dragging me around record shops and i'd be sort of looking through the funk sections and you'd see their albums i mean they didn't even get an album release in the uk until their seventh album which was knights of the sound table great nice title, <laughs> um they, they had played live a bit in the uk they had a bit of a following i mean when they did their first tour the year before i remember I remember seeing an advert in the local paper for the Royal Concert Hall and it said Cameo sold out. And it's just like, yeah. fuck it, who the fuck are Cameo? I thought I was on top of everything in the music world. I'd never heard of them. And I assumed because of the name that they must be some kind of prog band. Yeah. Or something. Mm. Yeah, I, I guess they're getting played late at night by Robbie Vincent or whoever. I, I right. don't know. But they, they obviously had a following on the kind of soul. Oh, yeah, circuit. they were like Maze, weren't they? Just yeah, no, yeah. nobody knew them yeah. apart from all the people that sold out their gigs. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. And this is it. I mean, I used to see their records in in the racks alongside Rufus and Shaka Khan, who I also didn't really know who they were. And, and you know, just these sort of like dog eared records, second hand records. And did you think Rufus was called Rufus Khan? <laughs> no, I, no, I didn't. <laughs> but the thing with with Cameo, the, the name and the logo they had in those days, the logo was a kind of Art Nouveau thing. It looked more like a bar of soap. Yes. You know. Than, than, than a, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Than, than a funk band. But obviously when they, they had their big rethink, they changed everything. They slimmed down from 14 members to, you know, four or five. Mm. And the logo became more kind of blocky and chunky and, and modern. Mm. The music did too. The music became more blocky and chunky and modern as yes. well. I listened to an interview with Larry Blackman recently uh, by Questlove. It's on the Questlove podcast and in that he talks about the fact that he really enjoyed being at the end of the old school but at the start of the new technology he really enjoyed Mm -hmm. being in this position where he was part of that changeover yeah and you you can really hear that because this record and this era of cameo is all about minimalism 
really. Mm. In the interview with Questlove, he's talking about some kind of piece of machinery he's got, and he says it's a Mitsubishi. Now, I looked into this. I couldn't find any bit of audio equipment that's made by Mitsubishi, so maybe he's got that wrong or, or just my searching skills aren't up to it. But anyway, whatever this piece of machinery was, he says... It could make silence sound good. Mm. <laughs> and that's clearly that's clearly what Cameo were about at this time. It's all about the gaps and the spaces mm. between everything. Mm. Um, there's, there's some amazing stuff about the sort of backstory of Cameo in that interview, by the way. There's a thing, you know, you said they, they slimmed down from 14 members, but when they had 14 members, they needed a massive tour bus. Yeah. They bought that tour bus from Muhammad Ali. No! Yeah. Fucking hell. Larry Blackman's dad was a boxer, so maybe there was some kind of connection right. there. I don't mm. know how, how it happened, but yeah. You can imagine that sort of like handing the keys over. This oh, kind of, yeah. man. That might have been about 1981, because that's when Ali had his last fight. Um, right. He yeah, lost maybe to Trevor Burbick. And of course, yeah. at that point, his entourage would have just disappeared, you know, so he's definitely going to have a, a bus going begging, yeah. definitely. The thing with his backstory, Larry Blackman, he talks about growing up in New York, and uh, when he was just a child, he was hanging around the Apollo, mm. and he, he saw live people like sam cook and yeah. james brown and right through to funkadelic and maybe i'm extrapolating too much from this but you know and maybe i'm drawing lines between things but you, you can see the kind of showmanship yeah. that larry blackman must have learned from watching people like james brown and george clinton and, and sam cook but also the other kind of musical element in his life was he was in this thing called the junior guard right. which is like an even more paramilitary version of the Boy Scouts. It was basically funded by the FBI. Um, In in the interview, Larry compares it to the Hitler Youth. Right. right? (laughs) And he joined the Drum and Bugle Corps of the Mm. Junior Guard. And in that, he learned drums first and then the bass right. from that you know his family moved to atlanta and then he takes those skills to form a school band which becomes cameo and maybe this is a stretch by me but he's in this kind of quasi military organization playing military music and he's playing the drums and the bass and he's learned all this showmanship and that's cameo you've got this mm. kind of robotic military beat backbeat to it eyes right yeah, yes, yeah. which is the best bit in the song eyes right mm. yeah all of that and that kind of minimalist era of cameo for me it's their best stuff I I mean, I've, I've tried with the old fun mm. material. I don't know if David has. For me, it's quite sort of second tier, second tier. Yeah, Dallas now. This is, this, this is their stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think it starts with the album Style in 1983. Questlove goes further than that. He reckons I Just Want to Be, a single they released in 1979, is where that kind of thing starts, the sort of futurist bit mm. of what they do. But the first that we, the general public, as opposed to kind of specialists and soul boys, I guess, um, would have heard of it was She's Strange, yeah. um, mm. which was, you know, top 40, first time round later reissues got slightly higher and again you know this is the uk being ahead of the game um mm. cameo didn't make the billboard top 40 until word up in 86 ridiculous and it was number three in the uk number six in the billboard charts but yeah we were way ahead of the game with, with cameo yeah I, I remember getting hold of the reissue of she's strange and on the b-side of that there was this cameo mega mix with you know various hits all welded together and it hit me that their music is modular like lego Mm. it it all fits to a template and you can mix and match bits together Um, Mm. which isn't to say that they all sound exactly the same but if you listen to she's strange single life attack me with your love word up 
Candy and back and forth, Candy, fucking hell. Oh, Candy's fucking amazing. That's their best tune, Candy. Yeah, probably is, to be fair. They all sound related, though, those tracks. They're brothers from another mother, all those tracks. And mm. the thing, in, in, in pop music, you only need one idea if it's a brilliant idea. Yes, totally, you yes. Know, whether you're the Ramones or Lana Del Rey, you know, just that one idea will sustain you. God, Candy, I mean, David talking about witnessing how people reacted to single life at a barbecue. Um, if, in the UK, you go to a black wedding and candy comes on have you seen that dance there's the dance that everyone does to it no there's a, a particular sort of um sort of yeah. dance routine that, that, that sort of like a, a group dance routine that everyone does to it and it's just i, I try learning it it's kind of a, yeah. but it's, it's kind of it's just an amazing thing to watch when Cyril regis died the footballer that dance broke out at his funeral wake and, yeah, and it's just the most amazing clip if, if you find it yeah i've seen that too but not everybody liked this new thing that uh, cameo would doing the critic jeffrey himes in the washington post called them shamio on account of all, all the studio trickery that they were doing oh and, fuck it off you know yeah and, and yeah obviously there, there was a lot of studio trick but that's the fucking point yeah. that's what's so brilliant about they're it. cheating they're using synthesizers yeah, yeah yeah and larry blackman is a genius you know mm. and he was the genius behind it you know he was the producer and all that but they were a group that's the thing mm-hmm. it wasn't just him you know you've got nathan lieutenant he's the guy with the two rows of little uh, baby mm-hmm. dreads um he was on vocals and played trumpet on some of their records. You've got Tommy Jenkins, who David mentioned, mm. um, and Kevin Kendrick. Those guys co-wrote most of the songs with Larry. So they really were a group. Yeah. Mm. But the thing is, they did have gimmicks. They did have mm. gimmicks. That was the whole... Like, Larry Blackman going, ah, mm. on most cameo hits. Yeah, later on, we're not quite there yet. He hasn't started singing no. like he's got a massive hunk of special toffee <laughs> in his mouth just yet. Yeah, or a close peg on his mm. nose. Yeah, um, <laughs> but I, I actually tried to trace the history of the funk. Ow! Yes, it's almost like a, a lockdown project. <laughs> I, I got so bored. I tried to make this happen. So it's there on September by Earth, Wind, and Fire. Yeah, and it's your thing by the Isley Brothers, nineteen sixty nine, and that was as far back as I could go. Nineteen sixty nine. It's your thing. Ow! Yeah. So if any pop crazy youngsters have got a credible earlier instance of the funk, ow! You know, <laughs> some people saying Sly and the Family Stone, but I couldn't find an example from pre-69 mm. so yeah I, I, I'd love to hear it and, and the other gimmick of course is the Ennio Morricone good the bad and the ugly gimmick of course no? yes that we hear on, on this record and that's a bit like you know um, Anne Dudley from Art of Noise she always had that hey mm. hey sound in the background mm. um, on anything she, she produced yeah. I quite like that that they had yeah. that gimmick that you instantly recognise the cameo track because of the yeah. Even if it's not an ow, which we don't get on this track, of course. <laughs> the thing is, it's yeah. absolutely nothing wrong. With, you've only got one idea. If it's a brilliant idea, it's great. Mm. All of these things are saying, yeah, hey, you know you like cameo and you liked all those cameo records? Well, here, and this is to indicate it, is another cameo record. <laughs> mm. yeah, an intro to a Motown song. It's pretty, you know Motown? You like Motown, don't you? Well, here's some more Motown. You know? <laughs> well, the individual drummers in, um, yeah. in, on, on Motown tracks, the, the Funk Brothers, had each drummer had, had their own individual fill that they would start the track. Yeah. With, so you could recognise which drummer it was. That's how extreme it got there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's very little here in this performance that will anger or unbalance the dads, but the BBC could have had a lot of fun with a full play of the video, which, as you'll recall, begins with a very chunky black man with a high top fade and an uber mercury of a moustache in a wedding dress, which he then rips off and <laughs> stomps out of a church so he can jump into a Ferrari and bomb around town with a selection of ladies from the 80s. 
90s with massive sex frizz hairstyles. Mm. Quite the thing to put out in 1985 in the middle of the AIDS scare. Yeah, the thing with Cameo is, particularly when you get to the Codpiece era, they are incredibly camp. Yes. But they were completely heterosexual. They're kind of the opposite of Wham in a way. Yeah. Because Wham appeared... Uh, at least to somebody of my generation, to be these 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 young straight lads, but you know, mm. obviously we, we we now know the the reality of that. Yeah. But yeah, mm. yeah, cameo, yeah. handlebar moustache, red codpiece, and yet yeah, utterly straight, which mm. is kind of amazing. Yeah. Like PJ Proby said, I was camp, but I put some beef into it. <laughs> <laughs> the dance moves are amazing. I think the, the coordinated dance moves on on this performance, mm. you know, they're really going for it. And mm. also, they had the guys and girls audience participation down way before. Mm. Timberlake way before Outcast. That single guys clap your hands yeah. and single mm. ladies clap your hands and all that, which is just fantastic. What a great hook that yeah. is. Yeah, you know? I don't know if they've been instructed to perform and respond, but the kids are well into it, aren't they? They uh, they, they yes. clap their gender specific hands mm. on cube <laughs> absolutely perfectly. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, a good way if this came on in the club, a good way to signal your availability. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or a really good way for your mates to turn around and just stare at you when uh, he sings that. Like, uh-huh, you haven't got and a you just go, oh, fuck off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't know where she goes to a different school. Yeah. Yes, exactly, <laughs> yes. I mean, Simon, you speak eloquently of the music of the 80s that emboldened you when you weren't in a relationship. Mm. And, you know, you could say here's another example, but, you know, I, I doubt Larry Blackman and his mates are staring out of their bedroom windows, taking in the landscape of Barry. No, because it's not the single life as in the celibate life. It's not the chaste life. No, certainly mm. not. It's the promiscuous life, if anything, you know. It's the slapping yes. it about life. It's, yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Even though I think that there is an underlying sadness because you know life isn't all cock and, yeah you know. are they funk though Mm. these people are in their late 20s early 30s they're veterans but unlike Prince or Michael Jackson a few years later you know they can breathe in the hip hop and breathe it out again in their own style they're not intimidated or encumbered by it exactly Mm. that's you've put it perfectly there they took hip hop on board but they also had an effect on it you know Mm. yes Um, the sound of R&B post cameo does bear their DNA I mean Teddy Riley Riley was definitely listening. Larry kind of mentioned mm. him in that Questlove uh, interview I did, and he mentored Teddy Riley to some extent and almost signed him to his label. Right. And you can hear that similar kind of use of emptiness and space on No Diggity by Blackstreet, for example. Mm. And, and you also, I mean, David correctly mentioned Pharrell Williams. Think of something like Drop It Like It's Hot and the sort of empty spaces yes. on that track. An outcast. Yeah. I mean, it turns out half of um, oh, yes. half of Cameo's backing musicians ended up playing on Stankonia and Speakerbox The Love Below. Ooh. Notably the bassist, um, Aaron Mills, uh, yes. ended up playing on, on outcast records. So so this this kind of influence of Cameo does, does carry on. Even if mm. their one gimmick kind of um, runs its course, they did really make, make a mark on hip-hop and R&B after their time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're kind of retro-futurist in a sense, isn't it? Because, you know, things like the dance yes. routines, that harking right back in as the, the pips and beyond or whatever, you know. But, you know, like you said, they're a functioning band. But, you know, they've got a handle on new technologies and fresh style and all that, you know. Because there'll be an interview in The Enemy a few months from now with Simon Witter. And yeah. he, he talks to Larry Blackman and he says, you know, I heard you don't like being termed as a funk band. Why is that? And he says, oh, we, we've just never seen ourselves as a funk band. Mm. Although I suppose you might say the same thing if I heard Cameo for the first time. When I think of funk, I think of guys who don't take baths, and I don't <laughs> like that. Mm. I mean, his big influence were Earth, Wind and Fire. 
they were yes. what he aspired to be. Mm. Um, and yeah, I mean, cameo Mark one, you can you can see that. So it's kind of weird that he doesn't identify with funk. But I suppose that's because he was trying to move things forward. You know, maybe for him, funk meant the seventies, and he was trying to move things in a different direction. Mm. It's interesting the whole the lyrics to this song. Yeah, it's about being a single guy putting it about, but it's also got that kind of S and M undercurrent to it every little thing you do makes me smile and if i had my way baby i'd tie you up for a while mm. influence of prince yeah yeah <laughs> the prinfluence if you will mm. as we're gonna see later on eh totally. <laughs> so the following week single life jumped five places to number 16 and a week later it got to number 15 its highest position the follow-up, a re-release of She's Strange, got to number 22 in December, and although the last cut from the LP, A Goodbye, would only get to number 65 in March of 1986, they roared back at the end of the summer with Word Up, eventually getting to number three in September. Word Up's my karaoke song, by the way. Is it now? <laughs> the thing is, it's, in some ways, it's a very foolish choice because all of the lyrics are in the first minute and a half, and then there's a load of instrumental fanning about you've got a yeah, dance yeah. man <laughs> or you could just go yeah. for a piss and come back that, yeah yeah that was the song uh, in which i basically defeated a member of the boy band blue at karaoke have i told this story before what yeah um a, a friend of mine uh, was having her birthday uh, a chinese elvis restaurant in Hampstead, and uh, so oh paul chan i think that might have been the south london guy i don't know because but there's one in Hampstead oh, right. as well and when the Chinese Elvis had finished doing his thing, it would be karaoke time for the punters. And uh, <laughs> what's his name? Simon from Blue uh, got up and did a Blue song. He actually did a karaoke version of one of his own hits. Oh, that's like David Van Day in the Falkland Islands. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did he do a cartwheel? He, he was a bit subdued <laughs> and didn't get really a great reception from the crowd. I was up next. I did Word Up by Cameo, and I really fucking went for it and brought the house down. Everyone fucking oh, loved it. So brilliant. in a way, I should maybe have quit when I was ahead, and that, that should have been my karaoke mm. retirement. But to this day, if for whatever reason I'm uh, forced to get involved in karaoke, I'm looking through the list for Word Up every time. Simon Whitemon. <laughs> <laughs> my, um, yeah, my karaoke song is um, Barry White. Can't get enough of your love. Oh, fucking hell. I want to hear We that. need a chart music karaoke night. <laughs> Fucking right. Brilliant. My go-to karaoke song has always been the Ramadan number one of 1974 itself, Kung Fu Fighting. <laughs> oh, yes. But I did it right in a down. pub in Nottingham once. Did a really decent roundhouse kick, but my oh. loafer flew off. Oh, went right to the back of the pub, caught by some bloke, threw it back to me over the heads of all these people, caught it again, put it on, carried on. <laughs> you can't improve on that. No. That's very good. It's a little bit frightening. Very yes, good. it was, man. They were expensive loafers. <laughs> and by the late 90s, I used to finish it off by going into the rap on the first mission of Parappa the Rapper on the PlayStation. Do you remember? <laughs> yeah. Kick, punch, it's all in the mind. If you want to test me, I'm sure you'll find the things I teach you are sure to beat you. Nevertheless, you get a lesson from teaching how kick. <laughs> what percentage of the audience knew what the fuck you were doing? There were enough of the heads in the audience yeah, yeah. To, to, to nod and appreciate. And my <laughs> mates fucking loved it. And that's the only thing that matters. You, you don't play to the gallery at karaoke. You play to your mates. Yeah, true enough. By the way, talking of Parappa the Rapper, David, I was delighted to learn that it actually sampled 
samples can. Did you oh, know? Oh this? my god! Not so much sample, but do you know that mission where you get a driving lesson off a moose? Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. The openings. The uh, it, it's an interpolation of the piano intro from Turtles Have Short Legs. Oh, yeah. Go back okay. and listen to it. Never mind that. Go back and rewrite yeah, your absolutely. book. Yeah, you know, no, this no, is yeah, the most important like. fact. Yes. My biggest fuck up with karaoke was actually the darkness. Um, I went to uh, I went to the Caroline Brunswick, which is a kind of goth pub in Brighton, and they had rock karaoke. And I chose "Get Your Hands Off My Woman, Motherfucker" by the Darkness. <laughs> and uh, uh, I, I know that Justin Hawkins sings in quite a high voice um, in quite a lot of their songs. I'd forgotten that that entire song pretty much is in a falsetto. So. Um, Oh, immediately man, the, the silly games of metal yeah hmm. I, I i throw myself into the first verse in a very high voice thinking it's gonna oh it, mate you know, where can you go i know from where there? Can you go and and basically after about three minutes of screeching i'd almost lost my voice and yeah and pretty much the pub had lost its audience as well <laughs> <laughs> If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Hey, it's a Mac group move. They're up to number 21 this week. Cameo, single life. Here are the charts. And there's a chart entry at number 40 for the alarm and strength. And a chart entry at 39, level 42, something about you. Down nine at 38, King, alone without you. Down 7 to 37, I wonder if I take you home, Lisa Lisa and Cult Jam. Chart entry at 36, aha, take on me. Down to 35, go the damned, is it a dream? Down 7 to 34, dire straits, money for nothing. And dropping to 33, running up that hill, it's Kate Bush. Princess Sam, your number one, goes down 6 to 32. And a new entry at 31, from the cult, Rain. Down 11 to 30, the cars and drive. And down 9 to 29, into the groove, Madonna. Up 7 to 28, five-star, love takes over. Up to 27, St. Elmo's Fire, John Parr. New entry at 26, the boy with a thorn in his side, the Smiths. And down to 25, go UB40 and Chrissy Hind. Up 12 places, 24, the cure, close to me. Up 8 to 23, my heart goes bang, dead or alive. Renee and Angela, I'll be good, goes up 2 to 22. Up 4 to 21, Single Life, Cameo. And the highest new entry at number 20, Iron Maiden, Running Free. 
Lloyd Cole and the Commotions, up 3 to 19, brand new friend. And up 3 to 18, it's called A Heart from Depeche Mode. Cliff's up one place to 17, she's so beautiful. Down 7 at 16, Baltimore, Tarzan Boy. And down 5 to 15, Mai Tai, Body and Soul. Amy Stewart, Knock on Wood, goes down 6 at 14. Climbing 4 to 13, The Style Council, The Lodgers. Down 1 at 12, Maria Vidal, Body Rock. And up 1 to 11, The Power of Love, Huey Lewis and the News. And that's the way the chart stands up to number 11. We'll have more charts for you a little later. That's when we take a look at the top 10. Right now, here are some tips for the top. Here are the top 40 breakers. This guy had to make it in America before he could make it over here. Up 11 places this week to number 27. It's John Pass and Elmo's Fire. Hey, can that group move, says Jordan, as Davis grabs us by the wrist and whips us into the charts from 40 to 11. Because we're already at the stage where the charts start to matter less and less. That's terrible, isn't it, chap? 75% of the top 40 just done in one oh, go. Oh, yeah. So anticlimactic. Yeah, it goes over too long. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it really does. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like the classified scores at the end of Grandstand. It's like yes. You, you realise they have to do it, but yeah, it just goes on and on and on. Yeah, and we're hit with the images of saxophones, guitars and keyboards and that. I always say this, but that awful soft rock version of Yellow Pill, fuck it, I hate it. Yeah. Yeah, those crappy clip art images of guitars and saxes and piano keys. And then, yeah. what, uh, and I don't know if you noticed, but the backgrounds of loads of the photos have been blacked out, or they've been you know, the black, or the whatever background was has been replaced by some other solid block of colour. It's like mm. like a Google Pixel. It's like yeah. somewhere between Joseph Stalin and Google Pixel. Top of the Pops was kind of intermediary <laughs> between those two things. Oh man! A few jumped out to me. Princess. Say I'm your number one. Um, yes. She's trying on a red bowler hat. And I kept thinking of, you know, that bit in The Wire where Bubbles has identified um, some of the, the, the gang members um, and, and you've got Key McGreg, the cop, up on the roof watching and Bubbles goes over to the dealers and puts red hats on their heads so right. you know, to try and sell them the hats, but also to show Kima up on the roof, yeah, these are the bad guys that you're looking for. Mm. Cars, drive, still hanging in there. God, it's fucking yeah, October Jesus. and we're still in the Live a hangover period. It, I didn't realise mm. it dragged on mm. that long. Um, I know it's cameo themselves. Only three of them made the photo cut. I yes. don't know why that is. And the other weird one was Rene and Angela. Um, the whites of Rene's eyes are too white. I don't know what, what's been done there. It's like a horror movie poster <laughs> or something. <laughs> Good to see a horror yeah. finally got take on me into the chart, though. Fucking hell, after three goes. Oh, that feels like a bit of a moment. Yeah, in at 36, mm. it's like, oh, here we go. You know, it's almost a, a, a new age of pop coming. With them. Yeah. I didn't realise it was so late in the 80s. You, don't, you sort of you f- you forget that yeah. they weren't even a thing in the first half of the decade. Yeah. And while we're still trying to digest all that data, Davis and Jordan immediately throw us into the breaker section, starting with St. Elmo's Fire by John Parr. Born in Worksop, Nottinghamshire in 1952, John Parr formed his first band, The Silence, at school at the age of 12, which he was a part of into his late teens. 
1968, he joined the band Bittersweet, spelt S-U-I-T-E, which were a regular feature on the Yorkshire Wheel Tappers and Shunters circuit, before he poached musicians from other top-working men's club bands and formed Ponder's End. I wonder if they ever played a few gigs with Punch. <laughs> After getting his hooks into the music industry through his songwriting, he signed a deal with Carl in America in 1983, which led him to link up with Meatloaf, who was looking for songs for his next LP, Bad Attitude. He introduced him to John Wolfe, who had been the Who's tour manager and was looking for something to do after they'd split up. He offered his management services and Paul was signed up as a solo artist to Atlantic in 1984. His first single, Naughty Naughty, was an instant success in America, getting to number 23 on the Billboard chart in March of this year, while Paul was supporting Toto on their American tour. And it was during that tour that he was approached by the composer David Foster, who was doing the soundtrack for the forthcoming Joel Schumacher film St Elmer most fire was impressed by naughty naughty and drafted him in to record the theme tune when foster played paul the track he had in mind paul told him it was cat shit and sounded well flash dance and suggested that they have a go with a new song which they wrote together as neither of them had seen the film and had little idea what it was about, Paul struggled with the lyrics until Foster showed him a news clip of the Canadian Paralympian Rick Hansen, who had just started an attempt to go round the world in his wheelchair. Taken by Hansen's name for the event, the Man in Motion tour, he hammered out the lyrics, chucking in the name of the film even though Schumacher told him not to. It immediately scaled the Billboard charts in the summer of 85, and two weeks after the film came out, it reached the summit of Mount Popmore in early July, spending two weeks there. Naturally, because we're Britain and shit, the film won't be out here until November, but thanks to Jonathan King, whose new BBC Two show No Limits plugged the single relentlessly, it entered the charts on the first week of September at 82, then soared 26 places to number 56. After jumping nine places to number 45, then seven places to number 38, this week it's gone 11 places up to number 27, meaning that Top of the Pops is finally screening the video, which is a melange of pass standing outside the titular bar in the rain and a big advert for the film. And alas and alack, chaps, the true face of 1985 reveals itself. God, it's, it's Mulletedness. I mean, workshop. That's basically your neck of the woods, isn't it, Al? So it's, it's it another, is, yes, it's the cradle of pop. I know, another union of democratic mine workers sized stain on your region, <laughs> though, isn't it? <laughs> Fucking hell. We got Colonel Abrams and then sent John Parr the other way, you know. Yeah. Honestly, I, I wasn't aware of the existence of this. You know, I did kind of follow the charts reasonably assiduously, you know, or was impacted by them. But I think I managed to zone this one out at the time with Dark Rum or whatever. So I kind of vaguely mm. hoped, you know, like, is this going to be a cover of the Branino track from Another Green World? And <laughs> it isn't. And it's, uh, oh, you know, it's just that wretched Bruce Springsteen influence, you know, that singing like you're trying to hurl up a greenie from the base of your throat, you know, mm. that horrible sustained grunt that, you know, it's supposed to... Do. I say passion, it's not even, like, lustful passion. It's urgent sincerity or whatever, you know. Yeah. It's not so much, you know, like, man in motion. It's just this 
walking compendium of every mid-80s transatlantic cliche. You know, oh, yes. Chromium played field to that brassy bat beat, you know. And the eagles are higher. You know, it's just like, <laughs> you know, think like high school movies, coming of age movies, killed rock. You know, you've got this, you've got yeah. Don't You Forget About Me, you know, Simple Minds. You know, oh, God, such yeah. a destructive influence. There's no St. Elmo's fire for us yet at the, uh, at the ABC or Odeon. Uh, at the pictures this weekend, we've got a choice of Pale Rider, Fletch, Life Force, The Holcroft Covenant, Cocoon, Rambo First Blood 2, Code of Silence with Chuck Norris, Desperately Seeking Susan, Year of the Dragon, The Return of the Living Dead, and The Care Bears movie. But by the look of this video, I would have definitely cocked my nose up at it. Yeah. The film appears to be about a load of American wankers having a better life than me. Yeah. Has anyone seen St. Elmo's Fire? No. No, 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 me neither. I mean, why would we? Mm. You know, this is the thing. It was the eighties. I Mm. had very limited money. Um, I, I was on ten pound a month from the Barry District News, so two pound fifty a week. That's NME two thousand and twenty-three wages, Simon. There exactly. Yeah, plus another two pound fifty I could scrape together from my mum and my dad and my granddad. So I was on. I had a fiver a week to spend. I had a look. That's the equivalent of fourteen pound seventy-two now, right? I'm not spending that on seeing fucking mainstream American films, you know. I wanted to culturally enrich myself. I was really craving yes. culture. And if mm. I was going to see a film, it would be maybe something worthy and British and kitchen sink like Letter to Brezhnev, so a bit of social yeah. realism. It might have been something surreal and arty, like A Razor Head or Betty Blue, um, you know, if I was going the French way with things, you know. Mm. Or I'd watch whatever Channel 4 threw at us, which, which might... Yes. It's usually sort of classic things, so, you know, it might be The Defiant Ones with Sidney Poitier and Tony Curtis. It might be uh, Night of the Iguana with Robert Mitchum or something like that, you know, mm. and these sort of black and white classics that, that felt enriching in, in some way. Yeah. And that's what I wanted. I, I wanted culture whether it was secondhand or brand new um yeah and this stuff it's everything i hated and still do even from the video you you can tell even though i've got no clue what the storyline is you kind of know what the storyline is it's triumph over adversity it's mm. people being successful and going for it man mm. just go mm. for it yeah you know mm. all this kind of shit and it's everything i hated i i can't even be ironically mm. nostalgic for it because no. people younger than me people maybe 10 years 12 years younger than me they love all this shit you know because mm. to them this is the fun 80s and it, you know if, if, if you go to a club where that generation are in charge of things that's what you're gonna hear yeah. what it reminds me of you, you know um in, in the film Boogie Nights where Dirk Diggler and, and his mate try and make a record and it's you got the touch you yes. got the power mm. yeah. and you know it's, it's, it's all that kind of fucking go for it go getting bollocks it's, do you know what it is it's mm. Tory music it's mm. Tory music. Mm. That's what it is. And uh, it totally yeah, makes yeah. sense to me that the backing music is played by members of Toto. His backing band mm. are basically Toto. <sighs> you know. So, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's like a youth wing of that. Reaganism, isn't it? You know, definitely. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, essentially, there were two records made in the mid-80s in 24 hours to be the lead single from a film, right? Right. One of them is the greatest record ever made. 
It's When Doves Cry by Prince. Right, The other yes. one is this piece of absolute shit. Um, yeah. 24 hours to make it. What it makes me think of, those 24 hours were basically spent in constipation. Like, mm. you know, he just sat there on the bog just shitting out this massive bowling ball-sized turd of American yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm, so, I'm sorry, I'm sure he's a nice bloke. No, it's, it's the sort of thing that's in the kind of elephant's graveyard of, like, pre-dawn minicab rides, isn't it? Mm. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, I, I suppose in, in some ways this is the sort of shit that we should play at late night minicab fm mm. we're going to be totally totally real about it yeah yeah I, I think in some ways music like this and films like joel schumacher's films and uh, john hughes movies they kind of signal the breakdown of the post-war consensus because mm. Mm. you know the, from the clement attlee government onwards there was this idea essentially in britain that we that we're all in it together and we look out for each other and that mm. there is a safety net if we fuck up and all this kind of stuff but mm. this kind of individualism and it's the worst kind of individualism mm. uh, has crept in and it, it is a very reaganite yeah. thing and it's yeah it, it is just young people being yeah go for it while mm. an an older man with bouffant hair encourages them yes by the way he's not even that old he looks older than he is he's like 33 when he's younger than Colonel Abrams yeah yeah this fucking Clarkson looking fucker yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean this is your bog standard movie trailer that thinks it's a pop video that was in style at the time with uh, Pa walking about the set of the bar that the film's named after and then doing the show right there on the stage yeah, while yeah, some yeah. bell ends embraces strut about and, and make the nerds get off their table yeah but yeah I know fuck all about the film all I know about the film is that this is a theme to it and the theme to it is shit so why would I bother I always get mixed up with John Farnham who sang You're the Voice I, I yes. never know which is which You're the Voice just yeah they might as well be well. the same person yeah I, know. yeah I think he's Australian but I don't think that was from a film but it's all the same bollocks he's already been interviewed on the first episode of the new series of Whistle Test this week at his home and yet he's come far from his workshop roots um, he's being interviewed in his home in Doncaster yeah. <laughs> living the dream <laughs> his, uh, his, his Wikipedia page page is one of those ones that's definitely been written by the person themselves you know right. where, where you get one that it says at the top um this biography of a living person needs additional citations or verification. oh yeah, 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 yeah. there's yeah. one of those words right because um, <laughs> you mentioned his band ponders end the, the little mm. bit about them it said uh, uh you know he, he formed a super group with musicians from other working men's clubs and named the band ponders end a band that set a new precedent for the bands in the north <laughs> what a weird thing to say set a new precedent in what way mm. precedent yeah. of shitness I don't know yeah. <laughs> it's like Cabri Voltaire isn't it? You know, yeah. Yeah. anything else to say about this no no nope. course nope. it's fucking shit exactly so the following week Sentelmo's fire soared 17 places to number 10 then spent three weeks in a row at number 6 its highest position it was tipped as a shoo-in for an Oscar nomination for Best Song, but when Paul opened up his gob about the song being written about Rick Hansen, it was disqualified because it wasn't about the film, and Lionel Richie won instead with Say You, Say Me. Ah, good. The follow-up, the release of Naughty Naughty in the UK, got to number 58, and after his duet with Meatloaf, Rock and Roll Mercenaries got to number 31 <laughs> in September of that year. He never troubled the top 40 again. Fucking hell, Rock and Roll Mercenaries. <laughs> I wonder if Putin's <laughs> rang them up yet. 
<laughs> yeah, well, come from workshop, it should be rock and roll scabs, more like. But, <laughs> <laughs> but Pa went on to do all right for his son, supporting Tina Turner on the private dancer tour, linking up with Pepsi to play a gig which was broadcast live in America, Japan and Australia and making quite a bit of money co-writing an advertising jingle of the late 80s. Do you, would you care to guess which one? Oh, go on. No. Well, it'll be blatantly mm. obvious when I tell you. Yeah. Gillette, <laughs> the best a <laughs> man can get. Oh, of get course. Yeah, yeah. Just one place above that one from John Parr come the Smiths, a new entry at 26, the boy with the thorn in his side. We've done the Smiths loads on chart music, and this, their eighth single, is the follow-up to That Joke Isn't Funny Anymore, which only got to number 49 in July of this year. Although we don't know it yet, this is the first cut, of sorts, from their next album, The Queen Is Dead, which isn't coming out for another eight months, and is a new entry this week at number 26. They've just finished a tour of Scotland earlier this week and are not available, so to celebrate them courageously breaking the top of the pop's colour barrier once more, here (laughs) is their first ever promo video the band have ever made. Mm. And let's get that video out of the way first, because it's the bog standard, the band having fun in the studio trope, or at least as much fun as a band can have when Morris is in it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of an anti-promo thing, really, in, in lots of respects, you know. And it, you've got the band, and then you've got the singer and the twain don't really connect, really. No. You know, it's like they're doing their own thing. Morrissey does his thing. There's no harmonies. There's never harmonisation. You know, there's just a sense of, like, one person delivering a monologue, and then the rest of them having a sort of instrumental conversation. And it's a very unprofessional studio, isn't it? Because it's got massive mm. windows and blinds and candles. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, the soundproofing yeah. must be fucking awful. And yeah. Morrissey takes his jacket off at one point and whirls it around a bit. And uh, yeah, that's your lot. You know, Adam and the Ants, this is not. Exactly. I mean, it feels willfully slapdash, you know, so like, fine if we must, you know. Mm, yeah. I mean, I've not done Morrissey, I don't think, on chart music Haven't before, you? actually. I don't think I have. Oh, well, come on, David, take the floor. Yeah, we all know what became of Morrissey, you know, what he descended into and what he sort of bloated and hardened into, you know, to the extent that, like for a lot of people, as we mentioned earlier on, it's now only tolerable to listen to Smith songs if Rick Astley is delivering them. Yes. You know? But... Um, yeah. But at this time, 1985, I mean, I wasn't obsessive about the Smiths, not not enough to actually buy and play their records at home, because the thing is, you just saw and heard plenty of them anyway. Mm. You know, you just did. But actually, I have to say, I thought at this point, Morrissey was a male model of divineness, you know, to mm. the extent that even if I didn't quite admit it to myself, I was I was actually modelling myself on him. Oh, and man. I wore my hair big on top, short the sides. Stubs, I see. Big, yeah, absolutely, yeah. I wore big baggy shirts. I had similar eyebrows to him also. You know, it's not like I was cutting pictures out of smash hits and sellotaping them <laughs> to my door. It wasn't a crush. It was just that, to me, he looked like a young man ought to look in 1985, mm. you know. 
But anyway, if it was unconscious, it was bumped right up to my conscious at a school reunion I had in Leeds around this time. Right. And I met Steve Turner notice, you know, fucking hell, have you seen Morrissey here? <laughs> I was like, no, it's a customised look. It's my, it's my own creation. I, Is it, fuck? You're fucking Morrissey. Hey, lads, come and have a, come and have a skeg at this charming get here. Hey, Morrissey, or fucking what? Oh, bad skit. Bad skit, exactly, yeah. Actually, what's Stephen Turner, or Stephen Andrew Turner, I suppose, I should say, we're talking about Morrissey, <laughs> fail to notice, I think since we, when we blokes give each other the up and down and tend to stop at the waist, is that below the waist, I was all soul boy, you know, jeans at half mast, white socks, plimsolls, anyway, there you go. Mm. Anyway, I thought the Smiths were at the height of their powers in the mid-80s with The Queen is Dead, especially the title track. I mean, everything from the queer provocation and the just the wah-wah velocity of Mars guitars, which is like graffiti spray paint. There was a series of videos that Derek Jarman made of tracks from the album, which had taped and, yeah, I watched a lot. So my take on the Smiths wasn't as yet affected by their non-blackness. You know, I saw them as twisted, very well-inflected Indian and to the idea of maleness that was still very prevalent, we just saw, you know, in the mid-'80s. Mm. I think they're the first group in British or rock history to pine for the monochrome, to pine for the black and white, to pine for this kind of sort of, you know, pre-era Ian Sharples in the snow or kitchen sink drama, you know, which I think is one of the fascinating things. And mm. just ironic, really, because I do actually like them in their most colourised moments, you know, like... The Queen is Dead track, you know. But um, this is supposedly Morrissey's favourite Smith song, but it's, mm. it, it, it's, it's not mine. No. It's a bit like Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now. It proceeds at this sort of leafy amble. It's a bit grey and drizzly and wrapped with swooning self-pity about how misunderstood and hard done by he is by the music industry. And it's all for, for fuck's sake, man. That terrible music press that just tongue his bollocks at every turn. I know, I know. It's like he's addicted to feelings of persecution, you know, whether they're merited or not, you know. Mm. And there's a bit too much of the kind of, whoa, whoa, you know, vocal catch-up on it. Oh, yeah. Even so, you know, you look at this and you listen to this and it still feels well above and beyond the surrounding 1985-ness of which, you know, there's so much in this episode. Yeah, you're right, David. It is apparently Morrissey's favourite Smith song, which is very easy to believe as it's three and a bit minutes of him whining like a big Jesse about how the music biz doesn't understand him and it's all their fault that his singles Mm. oddly ever get into the top ten. I mean, the Smiths' chart run up to now, Mm. 25, 12... 10, 17, 24, 26, 49. Mm. That's level 42 numbers, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Maybe he's going on about mainstream media because, you know, we like to believe that the Smiths dominated the mid-'80s, but I had a trawl of the newspaper archives of 1985 and the dominant Morrissey is the Tranmere Rovers winger, Johnny Morrissey. Mm. There's even more references to a singing group in Ireland called the Morrisseys than there is <laughs> yeah. an actual Morrissey. The jazz fusion band Morrissey Mullen get more mentions than him, mm. but I only saw one or two references to Morrissey in the papers so yeah. yeah maybe that's what he's concerned about yeah yeah there's a lot of uh, revisionism these days that that has it that uh, the smiths were massive in the 80s that you know sort of u2 or simple minds kind of size they mm. were not they were not no. they were very much two or three rungs below that yeah obviously their impact uh, was huge and it sort of reverberates yeah. down the decades far more than than the new two or, or, or simple minds yeah but i think they became popular after they split, really. I think people mm. started to realise what they'd lost and, and started buying up the old albums. But at, at the time, they, they very much did feel like this quite fragile cause mm. that was uh, only just making it into the charts and needed every little bit of support it could get from right-minded people. Yeah. 
Anyway, this song, fucking cat shit. Mm. I fucking hated this <laughs> song when it came out. This was a song that just put the tin lid on it and my opinions of the Smiths. Mm. Particularly where the end, where he's just reduced to just mewling. Mm. He's just like, oh, fuck off, mate. Uh. Put Cameo back on. <laughs> I'd sooner have wow than ooh. Mm. Well, I've got to disagree. I mean, it's... No, 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 disagree away, man. We live in democratic England, not communist Russia. <laughs> I mean, OK, it's no single life by Cameo, but then what is? Mm. I think it's a delightful record. I really do. Right. Yeah, it, it really speaks to me, actually. There's a bit in The Wire, and I, I do quote The Wire almost as much as I quote <laughs> The Sopranos. <laughs> but in, in season four of The Wire, which um, all civilised people agree is the best season of The Wire, that's the one with the school kids. Mm. The correct order of how good the seasons of The Wire is is four, three, two one five by the way right mm. um, anyway there's a bit in in an episode of season four and it is all about school kids where one of the kids dookie asks cutty who's kind of their mentor the sort of youth group mentor how do you get from here to the rest of the world such a poignant question mm. cutty mm. just says cutty just says i wish i knew mm. and there's a bit in boy with a thorn in his side by the smiths that goes and when you want to live how do you start where do you go who do you need to know? Mm. And that really spoke to me as, as a teenager trapped in, in South Wales and not really knowing many people who were like-minded and just reading about exciting life going on in, in, in other places through the Face magazine or, or, or whatever. Mm. It's a lightweight song, uh, mm. but I think that's one of the, the, the delights of it, that, that it's quite flyaway. It doesn't have the attack of Big Mouth Strikes Again on the same album. Mm. But mm. I think when you take it together with the B-sides uh, of, of this record, Asleep and Rubber Rings, it really proves the depth and breadth of their songwriting at this time. I don't know if you know those songs, but no. Asleep is this incredibly haunting suicide ballad, essentially. And Rubber Rings is this incredibly perceptive lyric about what it is to be a pop star who knows that they will one day soon be discarded by the people who love them. Um, the Rubber mm -hmm. Rings, of course, being records, you know, the, the circular seven-inch single. Yeah. They're both fantastic songs, and Rubber Rings particularly, great bass line by the late, great Andy Rourke, um, yeah. R.I.P. Oh, first of the gang to die. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah, indeed, um, who, who we see on this clip. It's lovely to see him on there. Mm. This song, um, yeah, I, I, I don't suppose it, it would be uh, Exhibit A if I was trying to convince somebody of the genius of the Smiths, but it's, it's part of the picture, definitely. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah, he is second-guessing the way in which he's perceived by the media and the public in, in the lyric here. And, and that's always where things start to curdle with any band, when they are too obsessed with their own perception. Mm. But is it? Because, I mean, look at Public Enemy, you know, Don't Believe the Hike mm. and stuff like that. Mm. Or the first Public Image single. Yeah, mm. but maybe with Morrissey, it was always there. Mm. You know, uh, David mentioned Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now, and that's almost self-parodic, and that's mm. what their third single, I think, Mm. Well, it's his own fault that he's not getting more media attention. Go on Live Aid. Go, <laughs> go out with Linda Lasada. Uh -huh. Come on, sort yourself oh, out. Oh, but that's exactly it, though. As you well know, that's exactly the point, that he wasn't that guy. And, you know, mm. David said that Morrissey was almost his kind of platonic ideal of mid-80s manhood, that, you know, it was worth aspiring to be. And I, I, I completely felt that, too. He, he wasn't the healthy, tanned, mainstream ideal of 80s mm. youth. He wasn't no. a typical kind of boy band pretty boy or, or rock god. You know, he's, he's prognathic of chin and heavy of brow. Mm. But it doesn't matter because he's filled with self-love. Mm. I found something quite subversive about the self-regarding vanity of, of 
you know, the, the, the way he touches himself so much mm. in this video clip, you know, he's running his hand in his shirt, which is open to the navel almost. Mm. And men who look like him are, are not meant to fetishize their own bodies, not meant to love their own bodies mm. in that way. And I, I found that absolutely fantastic. Yeah. More memorable to me than this video is the performance they did of this song on Top of the Pops, where yeah. he's got Marry Me written on his neck in eyeliner. Mm. It's this guy who's not classically handsome, or some people would say he was, but uh, he, he wasn't the 80s ideal of handsome. You know, he wasn't George Michael or Morton Harkett or something like that. I think Morrissey would have married himself if it was legal, definitely. Yeah, yeah, fair point. Oh, yeah. He's, but he's, he's wearing a very nice blue sort of paisley patterned shirt in, mm. in this. I was quite mm. envious of that. And he does have a hairless chest, which I don't know if he shaved it. He's, I think it's quite hairy now. Mm. It comes with age. But I just think as, as a sort of an exhibit of non-masculine manhood, mm. but not being ashamed of yeah. that. Mm. And, and actually, in, in a weird way, sort of fetishising yourself. I thought it was, it was, it was a wonderful thing. I do look back and wonder why I loathe the Smiths so much. And I think it might be something to do with the fact that people expected me to be a Smiths fan because by this time I'd become this really quiet, introspective youth who kept to himself. People probably just thought, you must like the Smiths. And I'd just go, no, what the fuck are you going on about? Mm. Yeah, I can see that. Because not only did I not like the Smiths, I I didn't want to hang around with people who like the Smiths either. (laughs) Yeah. In case I caught Smiths off them. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I've said before, by the time I was at college a few years later, you know, there'd be mm. Prince people and Morrissey people, and I always wanted to be around the Prince people. Mm. Well, this, this is the cruel irony of it. I thought, you know, how do you get from here to the rest of the world? Uh, when you want to live, how do you start? Where mm. do you go? Who do you need to know? And all of my hopes in that line were directed towards getting out of Barry and going to university. And I thought, once I got to university yeah. in London, I'd be surrounded by all these amazingly erudite people who were probably Smiths fans yeah. well guess what I did get to university I was surrounded by Smiths fans and they're a bunch of cunts you know? <laughs> <laughs> they're really like just terrible people and just all my hopes came crashing down really oh. yeah. and nowadays of course they're even worse the, the, the people who will still defend to the death anything Morrissey says you know that rump of his fan base who's still there are almost by definition the worst people on earth mm. and they'll probably come for me now when they hear this but I don't give a fuck yeah. Yeah. They, they are terrible the thing now is though of, of course the only way in which it's possible to like the smiths or to enjoy the smiths for a lot of people is to say oh well i always preferred johnny marr yeah mm. and of course yeah sure johnny marr boy genius mm. an absolute musical genius and he looked he, he is a boy he looks so so young in this yeah. clip I, I guess he was still only about i don't know 20 he's, or about, he's about my age knows. yeah yeah. yeah, so there's that kind of tendency of, of, of people now to say, oh, no, I never liked Morrissey. I never liked him anyway. Mm. It was always about Ma for me. But I remember the time, I was always deeply suspicious of people who said that. People who said, oh, yeah, that band, The Smiths, they're not bad. I like the guitarist, mm. you know, because it's basically a way of saying, uh, yeah, don't worry, I don't like that weird puff they've got mm. the lead singer. Yes. There was that idea among, among lads, and, and I was very... I, I, I'm not going to rewrite history. I was very, very pro-Morrissey. Mm-hmm. I hung on his every word um i thought only he understood me and perhaps only i understood him and uh, earlier this year 1985 i went to see my second smith's concert right. at chippenham gold diggers I, th- I think i've spoken about my first smith's gig in cardiff heckles in bear yeah yeah uh, in, a, in a previous chart music but this one i just remember being transfixed by morrissey i remember standing in the middle of this whirling seething mass of humanity in in the mosh pit and i was just standing still and morrissey actually noticed me and and he thought there was something up you know like 
and, and he sort of like looked at me and sort of did a thing with his eyebrows, like tilted his head, like are you all right, kind of thing. Mm. Right. Everyone else is moving. I'm just stood staring, and yeah. it must have looked really quite odd. But yeah, it it, it was almost uh, religious for, for me to 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 be that close to him. And obviously, my view of him as a human being has changed dramatically mm. now. But I, I'm not going to lie and say it wasn't how it was. No, I think that's I think, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there was a tremendous validity about Morrissey. Mm. It's interesting that lyric that you picked out, which I think you know. It's very fair point but I think for me it shows that part of Morris's appeal was to kind of preserve that period prior to him being remotely famous at all you know yeah. that late adolescence or whatever yeah, yeah. it's almost in a sense becoming as famous as he did as a slight inconvenience you know in the kind of narrative that he's often presenting because you know I think he wants to preserve perpetually that sense of adolescent exile from things mm. I think Simon Reynolds when he interviewed Morrissey for Melody Maker it would have been around the first solo albums I guess 88 mm. he asked Morrissey what are you going to do when you've exhausted did the diaries yeah and yeah i think right. i think you know morrissey kind of accepted that's a pretty good point and it's essentially what, what you're saying mm. now yeah, yeah. And, and of course the answer is that he'll start writing twee whimsical songs about carry-on actors or, or whatever it is you know mm. i mean this ineffectual songwriting of, of the 90s and i think a, a little smith's affection from the 80s carried him a long long way mm. with very little justification in in the 90s i probably clung on longer than i should have done but just stuff like Dagenham Dave or whatever. Yeah. Another one for me, fatty. Yeah. Whatever. Fuck off. Yeah. And that's even before he really outs himself as a, you know, well, we, we all know what he is. We don't charge yeah. to get sued. Hmm. But one of the things that, that I really valued uh, about the Smiths, and this is also tangentially related to this record, is that they were a group that came with a cultural hinterland. Mm. Previous bands had done that for me. You had Dexies, you know, singing about Oscar Wilde and Brendan Behan and all of that, yeah? And, and, and you had the Style Council doing a similar thing. There was so much to unpack mm. with with, mm. with their records. You know, the record sleeves would have all these kind of quotes from French philosophers and stuff like that. Yeah. And the Smiths come along and, and th- there was so much of that with them. Obviously, the, the two big ones being James Dean and Oscar Wilde. But this record sleeve has Truman Capote on it. And uh, right. I didn't know who he was. No. And stuff like that fires your curiosity. It's like, okay, well, it's it's a nod to you as a fan of the Smiths. All right, well, if you want to know where we're coming from, investigate this stuff and dig into it. Mm. And it only took me 40 years, and I did. I, <laughs> during lockdown, I read Music for Chameleons, the short story uh, mm. um, uh, collection by Trim Capote, which, which I, I, I did enjoy, although I admit I only bought it because it shares a title with a Gary Newman song. Mm. But mm. the value of that stuff can't be underestimated, particularly to a, a, a sort of a voracious teenage mind. Yeah, absolutely. I think that all of that is true. And I think there is, as I say, the tremendous validity, you know, to the Smiths. But retrospectively, I think kind of what probably galls me the most is seeing how they broke the relationship between, I don't know, white post-punk, whatever, and black music, which had yeah. been something that had been right there at the beginning, you know, punk, you know, like punky reggae park, et cetera, et cetera, you know, the whole reggae, the funk thing, the pop group, certain ratio, you know, that they'd always, you know, this strong relationship. Well, I know what you're mm. saying, but, but it is in there. I mean, you know, this charming man has got a Motown oh, baseline, yeah. and and uh, you know there there are bits of chic mm. like guitar and Big Mouth Strikes Again. In fact, Johnny Marr named his son Nile after Nile Rogers. You know, and mm. there is all that in there. But it's not as kind of overt as it had been before. I mean, you know, yeah, you're right. There are these kind of slightly Motownish, and of course, it's always like if it is black music, it has to be like very very historical black music. You know, there's mm. no relationship mm. at all with contemporary black music. No, they, they they weren't doing what you know the Jesus Mary Chain yeah. or Susie and the Banshees were yeah. doing, which is sort of incorporating hip hop beats into their 
them. Yeah. Said there was never going to be no, 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 no. And it's you know, and it's just the statements that he made about black music. You know, as, as we know about Diana Ross and reggae and, and vile and they conspiracy yeah, yeah. together. You know, so it was all of that as well. What's it going to be like when Morrissey dies? Is he going to go back to being the Morrissey of the mid eighties, like Elvis became mm. the Elvis of the late fifties? I, 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 I think I think the word but. Will, will happen a lot, mm. you know. There'll be 280 character tweets or, or however many characters you can put on Mastodon or uh, what's what's the new one called? Uh, threads, yeah. where, where people say, blah, 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 racism, blah, 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 but, and then yeah. th- then they sort of, like, say how much she meant to them. I, I think it'll be light and shade. It'll, it'll, be, it'll be both sides of it. Mm. Anything else to say? I've remembered exactly where I was when I watched the uh, Marry Me performance of The Boy With The right. Thorn Inside. Um, at our school, we had French assistants, assistants, um, who would, mm. would uh, come over on, I guess, their sort of gap year from, from uni in France and help to teach us French. There were two of them, one that taught me in the lower sixth, one that taught me in the upper sixth, that ended up being a couple, um, Corinne and Didier. And uh, because I was, you know, uh, in the upper sixth, you you get to that sort of stage where you kind of become mates with your teachers. Mm. And because they were so close to me in age, I guess they were only in their early 20s themselves. They kind of took me under their wing. And and one time they they invited me round uh, for dinner at their flat, which was uh, above a shop in High Street in Barry. And it was the first time I tasted exotic food like um, couscous and polenta. Um, Good Lord. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Imagine that in Barry. But Didier was... massive Billy Idol fan <laughs> right and uh, in a way and he was such a nice guy Didier uh, and uh, I, I don't want to mock him I don't really want to mock Billy Idol mm. but Billy Idol is very much a French person's idea of what is cool mm. again do you know mm. what I mean mm. it's that pop in your collar thing yes. whereas the Smiths for me were in a way more rock and roll uh, and more subversive but as a Frenchman I don't think Didier could completely understand that mm. I think that you know the Smiths and Morrissey do have their constituency in America America among Anglophiles, but mm. I wonder if it's it's a, a very very British thing to see what Morrissey did as being subversive and indeed rock and roll. You mm. know that that idea that the way to be rock and roll is to abscond and renege and drop out of the aesthetic of the dominant society. Mm. Whereas I think, yeah, my, my friend Didier was like, why isn't he wearing a leather wristband and going, <laughs> <laughs> We had assistance also in um, our, our school to help us with our French in the upper six. Um, but we also had assistance who helped us with our German, um, same sort of right, thing. Yeah. So I remember going to a party of various assistance in Leeds, you know, because like you say, Simon says, you can be kind of mates with us and, and uh, got talking to one of them, I think his name was, I don't know, Rolf. And, um, and he said, I'm from Hamburg. And said, Hamburg, wow, you must know all about Faust then. And he says, Faust, I do not know of this. I'm only interested in the important groups, like Rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Fuck it out. So the following week, the boy with the thorn in his side trudged up five places to number 23, which got them a studio performance on Top of the Pops next week, but then dropped five places and was out of the top 40 in a fortnight. They dropped out of sight for the rest of the year, resurfacing in the summer of 1986 with the follow-up single Big Mouth Strikes Again, which got to number 26 in June of that year. Mid-twenties again, come on. Here's a follow-up to In Between Days, up 12 places to number 24 this week. The Cure and Close to Me. Formed in 1986, 
in Notre Dame Middle School, Crawler, in 1973, Obelisk were a five-piece rock band which featured Mick Dempsey on guitar, Lol Tolhurst on drums and Robert Smith on piano, who played a one-off gig at the end of term review, like Manslaughter. <laughs> Three years later, Smith and Dempsey joined a local band called Malice, who were led by Martin Creaser and did assorted sets that covered Jimi Hendrix, David Bowie and the Alex Harvey Band, but when punk came a knocking, they changed their style and their name to Easy Cure after a song written by Tolhurst. After winning a battle of the bands in spring of 1977, they signed a deal with the German company Hansa, like Japan did in the same year, but the label wanted them to do covers, hated their demo of their proposed debut single, Killing an Arab, and the partnership dissolved in March of 1978. After myriad lineup changes, we saw Smith taking over on vocals. The group, now called The Cure, recorded a new demo, which found itself in the hands of Chris Parry of Polydor, who signed them to the Polydor offshoot Fiction Records and became their manager, finally releasing Killing an Arab in the last week of 1978, where it failed to chart. After putting out their first LP, Three Imaginary Boys, in mid-1979 and supporting Susie and the Banshees on their UK tour, with Smith eventually doubling up on guitar for the Banshees when their guitarist walked out, they made their first dent on the UK charts and their first ever Top of the Pops performance in May of 1980, when A Forest got to number 31. By this point, they've become a regular fixture on the charts, and this single, the follow-up to In Between Days, which got to number 25 in August, is the second cut from their 6LP, The Head on the Door, which came out last month and entered the album chart at number 7. It entered the chart a fortnight ago at number 44, moved up eight places to number 36, and this week it soared 12 places to number 24. And here's an all-too-brief clip of the video, which was directed by Tim Pope, who has been the band's go-to video bloke since 1982, filmed at Beachy Head. And fucking hell, I felt like I was given an oral exam to Master Price there. Did I get anything wrong, Simon? I think... I think he did a really good job of summarising the, the lineup changes in their early days, which is actually uh, way more complex than that. And I ended up writing, mm. you know, probably about six pages just on that in the book because it's ridiculous. Yeah. There are all these people coming and going as lead singers, somebody called Gary X, who's, uh, who's, right. whose whereabouts nobody knows anything of. Peter O'Toole, <laughs> no, not that one, and so on. Who <laughs> fucking hell? Yeah, and, and Mark Chichagno, who, who again is sort of lost to history, and all, all these kind of members of the Crawley, Hawley Mafia. Right. It's, it's ridiculous complex but I suppose it is in in small towns that you know where there's only a handful of people who are into music and people who own a drum kit are even more kind of prized so everybody mm. ends up playing in each other's bands you know and yeah I think there are anything up to 15 people involved fucking hell so well done on making it sort of tolerable in your preamble there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean I think this is really really good actually I mean you know you've got that kind of soft muted mm. feel in the production you've got that lovely little glowing keyboard line and of course you know the way it anticipates George Michael's faith in ripping off the old Bo Diddley riff and, uh. in, and in singing about faith as well. And it's a really good video. Um, and I guess that was a time where there's enough money yeah. sloshing around in the industry that the top tier could make videos like this, which, of course, 
therefore tended to exclude mm. like these little two bob indie outfits in the charts who simply couldn't budget for what was becoming a prerequisite for any sort of chart impact. I mean, that made a huge difference. Back in the late 70s, mm, yeah. spend 100 quid on just recording singles, and it would have a chance of charting. But mm. we're very much post all of that, of course, you know, post MTV and all that. But um, I mean, this video, I mean, an absolute claustrophobe nightmare. Mm, yeah. I bet Robert Smith wished he called the song Ample Breathing Space or something like that, definitely. <laughs> well away from me. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as for the cure, generally, I was just thinking about why they never absolutely riveted. Yeah. In the early days, I didn't like them as much as Susie and the Banshees, but mm. I liked them a lot more than Bauhaus. That's kind of where I sort of placed them in that scheme of things. Right. I mean, I suppose maybe I just find Robert Smith a little bit kind of floppy and swoony. Wonderfully, 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 wonderfully. Well, you know, but... Mm. Really, I don't think the reason is any failing on their part. I think it's the same reason why I was never absolutely riveted by the Smiths as a rule, much as I appreciated them. It's just that I think the Cure, the sort of group that invited you, regardless of you know gender orientation, to sort of become besotted with them at some level, infatuated, you know, that sort of... And I suppose I was never really mm. up for that sort of relationship, you know, which can tend towards the monomaniacal. Mm. And I just never had space for it because I was just listening to such a huge range of music in the mid-80s. But, you know, listening to this again and seeing this again, you know, I just wonder if I didn't miss out on something. I mean, obviously, Simon, to celebrate you finishing Curopedium because we've never done them before, I yeah. asked you to pick out a Cure single for this episode. Yeah, yeah. So why this one? Well, this is the song that sealed the deal for me as, as a Cure fan. I mean, I'd, right. I'd previously enjoyed and admired them. Um, you know, I... I um, I suppose I was mostly familiar with their occasional forays into the charts. So, you know, stuff like the Love Cats that David alluded to there, mm. Um, mm. The, the Caterpillar, the Walk, stuff like that. Um, yeah. But, um, yeah, this this song, um, and I, I guess the album itself, The Head on the Door, is kind of where I really fell for them. And I mentioned before that I was sartorially under the influence of various people, whether it's Morrissey or Prince or Ian Asprey around this time. Well, Robert Smith's definitely part of the picture by now because I'd started... Mm. I remember turning up to one of the aforementioned house parties wearing eyeliner for the first time. I thought, oh, I'll try this out. Dare I do it? <laughs> you know, and uh, and yeah, it yeah. seemed to work and I carried on with it. And I nagged my mum to knit me a massive baggy mohair jumper <laughs> like what Robert Smith would have worn you know i still got it actually <laughs> not so baggy anymore um but uh, yeah this is what sealed the deal for me but it was only after this and i suppose shortly after this you you get the greatest hits album um standing on a beach that everybody had mm. because if you're a fan of alternative music in the 80s there weren't many greatest hits albums mm. you had once upon a time by susan the banshees you had things like singles going steady by buzzcocks and maybe a few others. I think later on, um, Echo and the Bunny Men, Songs to Learn and Sing. But really, if, if you want to yeah. sort of bang for your buck, value for money in terms of greatest hits, um, there weren't many. And Standing on a Beach by The Cure was a real kind of primer. And it was the, this single and stuff like this single that made me buy it in the first place. But then it had things on it like The Hanging Garden, which then piques your interest. You think, well, where did that come from? And you end up listening to the album mm. Pornography. Yeah, which for me is their greatest mm. album, and um, yeah, I, I was kind of interested that uh, David wasn't sort of really grabbed by by that. I, I would have thought pornography and faith would have been the two for a fan of, let's say, Joy Division, like like yourself, yeah. that that might have spoken to you a little bit. But, oh, yeah, no, no, no. I mean, I probably just didn't get around to like buying them, to be honest. Yeah. Mm. The thing with me is, that, you know, I've, I've mentioned my love of Motown before, and also my love of Motown derived pop yeah. of the eighties, and the Cure mm. at this point are sort of dabbling with that, really aren't they? I mean, this is the second single from 
the head on the door. It's the second Cure single in a row to have a detectable Motown influence. You mentioned uh, In Between Days, the, the single before it, mm. um, which has more of a kind of crashing, exuberant Detroit clatter. That's Boris Williams, the drummer. He was incredible. Um, he was, you know, widely considered their, their best drummer. There have been many. Right. But this single, uh, it's got that kind of wonky Tamla Motown beat. Robert Smith told Record Mirror that it reminds him of Jimmy Mack. Right. Mm. In Between Days was sort of everything in the kitchen sink thrown in. It was a big sort of Motown production. But on this one, you've only got the very barest rhythmic skeleton of Motown. And yeah. It's got this minimalism. It's got this minimalist sort of punch and snap between Boris Williams and Simon Gallup on bass. It's back and forth. Mm. It's got this exquisite discipline to it, I think. Mm. And... David mentioned the video and how it takes the lyrics very literally. Mm. The song is musical onomatopoeia as well, because from the instrumentation and the really excellent production from David Allen, that's not the guy sitting on a stool with a glass of whiskey and, um, you know, one finger missing, by the way. Um, <laughs> and, and Robert's very up-close and personal vocal, the, the way it's recorded. Mm. So it sounds like what it is. It's a song about claustrophobia, yeah. and it sounds airless and desiccated and sort of freeze-dried and oppressively intimate, I would say. Mm. But the thing that opens it up and just gives you that little bit of breathing space is the brass section. Yeah, The brass section absolutely makes it for me, right? That was um, provided by a South End Jump Jive revival band called Rent Party. Right. Yeah. They play these sort of muffled trombones and trumpets, and it makes it sound sort of ragtime, doesn't it? And mm. A little bit in the same way that the Love Cats had that kind of Aristocats feel to it. Mm. The brass comes in after every musical phrase, almost like an answer to a question, and it's just wonderful. And that's only on the single version, by the way. If, if you hear close to me in the context of The Head on the Door... You don't get the brass. You don't even get... You know, there's that creaking hinge at the start yeah. of the single. Mm. That was actually a sound effect from the video, which they then tacked yeah. into the single. Oh, right. um, so uh, it's missing that. It's missing the brass. And you, you feel a bit short-changed when you hear it on the album. Mm. And the reason that the brass is there, it's because there, there was internal disagreement about whether it should even be a single. Right. Which seems, seems mad now, but... God, yeah. Yeah. The, the rest of the band were convinced it would be a hit. Robert wasn't so sure. Um, and he agreed to put out a single only with the addition of a brass section. And that turned out to be a masterstroke, I think. Mm. So, yeah, let's talk about the video, because we all know it so well. You know, the band trapped in a wardrobe on a cliff edge at the third most notorious suicide spot in the world after the Golden Gate Bridge and some wood in Japan. But, you know, loads of other things have happened there. It's where Jimmy crashed his scooter yeah. at the end of Quadrophenia, where it could have landed on David Bowie's JCB in the Ashes to Ashes <laughs> video. And for all we know, it could also be on the same spot where Throbbing Gristle did the cover shoot for 20 Jazz Funk Grace. Yes. Yes. Sadly, the wardrobe doesn't go off the cliff and then fly off like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang did <laughs> in the same location. But, you know, yeah. we can't have everything. <laughs> no, no. It's not even the only Cure video to feature Beachy Head. Um, oh, really? Well, first of all, because there's the part two of this, because they put out the remix version that came from their mixed-up um, remix album. Uh, oh, yes. And, and there was a video for that, which sort of starts at the bottom of the ocean, but, you know, you, you see the cliff falling off the edge. But also, um, Just Like Heaven by The Cure has a video which is also, it's supposed to be set on Beachy Head, but it was actually recreated in a studio. But no. um, but yeah, it, it was about a real life um, sort of camping trip that Robert and Mary and and some friends had at Beachy Head. So yeah, it, it, it recurs in sort of Cure mythology quite a lot. Mm. For me though, they were the greatest video band of their generation. Mm. I think the only rivals would be Madness for that. 
Yeah, the mm. Cure and Madness in the eighties were just always brilliant for videos. I think, and yeah, that that is mainly down to Tim Pope, who I think, if we're looking at the Cure's body of work, he's the other genius in in this story. I think. Yeah, we've spoken about him before, haven't we? When we did Long Hot Summer by the Star Council. Yes, and I think this is the Cure's best video, despite all that strong competition. It starts um, beachy head in that wardrobe, filled with clothes and filled with the Cure, <laughs> and there is that creak that we then hear on the single. The first face you see is Simon. Gav- and he's all trussed up Mm. and his mouth is lit from inside by a light bulb the camera then moves to boris williams and he's clapping out the rhythm and this is the thing they're all using objects instead of instruments so oh a loltolos to be fair does have this tiny little casio keyboard Mm. but then on the top shelf you've got paul thompson nowadays pearl thompson um picking out the notes on an orange plastic comb yeah like that and then finally he sort of rises up through all the jackets and the shirts and the hangers you've got robert smith and as he starts singing you've got these finger puppets which represent each member of the band yeah and they're they're made by tim pope's uh company he was called glow and and he sort of manhandles them quite roughly robert you know and then um every now and then we see these external views of the wardrobe teetering on the edge Mm. and in this episode of top of the pops that is all we see is just the teetering of course yes in the full video two minutes in during the trumpet solo it does topple and you know down past the chalky cliff and we see the red and white striped lighthouse and you know onto the rocks below but instead of shattering on impact which you'd expect and killing everyone inside it Mm. miraculously hits the sea and begins filling up with water and and soaking and implicitly drowning everyone within Mm. drowning is a sort of recurring trope in cure songs there's loads of cure lyrics about drowning and yeah i I just think it's a masterclass from tim pope and i think robert's acting performance is, is superb uh, in this because mm. the other members of the band they stay quite neutral mm. quite understated mm. instead of sort of mugging or portraying panic they just look quite calm but he does look kind of traumatised apparently Robert Smith has quite the affinity for water doesn't it uh, according to a Daily Mirror guide published round right about this time about where the pop stars go on their holidays we learn that Fish goes to Amsterdam whenever he can uh, Roger Daltrey loves West Island for the trout fishing Holly Johnson spends loads of time in a away with his boyfriend Wolfgang and the Lake District is Robert Smith's favourite place where he indulges in a go on water skiing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he used to go to Lake District or Wales. According to the article, the Lake District is also popular with fellow spiky-haired person Howard Jones. Yeah. I can just see Howard Jones and Robert Smith water skiing there. Mm. Yeah. Probably on each other's shoulders. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's funny that there are so many um, Cure songs about drowning that I've actually got mm. a, a section in the book just drowning yeah. um uh, <laughs> yeah. it is for drowning it's a recurring yeah. thing but uh, he had plenty of time to think about that in in the video shoot for this because as david alluded to it was, it was kind of horrific mm. by all accounts um right. uh, it, it was robert's least favorite cure video to make and, and partly that was just the sheer discomfort of being in water for mm. such a long time they, they filmed it in this huge tank filled with a thousand gallons of water mm. Ooh, and yeah. the right. state of the water didn't help i mean first of all he's thinking about dying a slow painful death the whole time just being in the water but then the tank was filled from a fire engine and the water in the fire engine had been sitting there for two and a half weeks and um, Mm. everyone was ill after that apparently um to make matters worse (laughs) lol tolhurst had been for a curry the night before Oh, and, no. Uh, yeah, oh, no. Uh, with toxic results, as you can imagine. Um, this is, I've got a <laughs> quote from Tim Pope. This is what Tim Pope said later. 
Lowell's bowels were a problem in a very confined space. <laughs> Suddenly, I saw the crew retract and the band all shot over the other side of the studio. But Lowell was just standing there with his bestial look on his face, grinning, <laughs> and I had to go outside and throw up. Yeah. Fucking hell. But yeah, the, the, the video was, was rarely shown on TV, certainly in full. Uh, there, mm. There's a myth that the BBC banned it. But everyone knew it. Uh, this is it. How do we all know it? Yeah. I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I sort of spent my 20s in the company of people who had the VHS of the Best of the Cure, so we'd just seen it on mm. there. But yeah, it was on MTV on heavy rotation, but we didn't have MTV in Britain. No. Yeah, so, yeah. but it, it does seem so familiar, maybe just from tiny little clips like, like this one. But yeah, Robert reckoned presumably the BBC was scared it would incite kids to, yes. to climb into wardrobes <laughs> and then fling themselves off cliffs. Yeah. yeah. Like finger puppets of themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah. Talking of illness, um, I mean, this is only in the breakers and they never get to perform it in the top of the pop studio mm. but that's a place that Robert Smith probably wants to stay away from for a bit judging on their last appearance article in the Daily Mirror last August the cure spiky haired singer Robert Smith was recovering last night from a stomach complaint which has laid him up for nearly a week Robert was struck down after celebrating the band's top 20 single in between days last week. After performing the song on Top of the Pops, he had a few pints in the BBC bar before really letting rip in a Chinese restaurant, says an aide for the group. He was violently ill the next day, but we ruled out alcoholic poisoning. Anyone who can drink ten perno and blacks can drink anything. Right. <laughs> He's not been well in 1985. It's been quite a stressful year because according to another Daily Mirror article I dug up entitled Love Cures a Nightmare, it reads, A vivid recurring nightmare turned cure lead singer Robert Smith into a nervous wreck. Now, as the group rocket through their charts with their brilliant single Close to Me, he has found the perfect remedy by falling in love with a nurse called Mary. It sounds silly, but I dreamed again and again that a plate glass window would drop down on me on Valentine's Day, injuring me horribly. Then I dreamed that the accident would end my life on April the 21st, my birthday. The dream terrified me and resulted in me lying awake at night, sweating. Robert was so distressed that he said he would drink himself senseless every night to forget about them. I don't think it mattered what I did because I wouldn't be alive much longer. When February the 14th came around, I went through the whole day feeling very anxious, but obviously nothing happened again. Just like Chris Needham seeing his own gravestone in a dream. <laughs> a fairly big gravestone, let us remember. Yes. It's a oh, yeah. sloppy well, journalism yeah. there saying that uh, he's found the remedy by falling in love with a nurse called Mary. They were together since they were 14. Mm. It's not just these, they haven't no. just met. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, just going back to what you were saying, Simon, about the whole Motown thing, that's really, really interesting that he sort of thinks about Jimmy Mack because it's such a kind of an oblique relationship mm. with Motown because I kind of felt that at times in the 80s, pop was a bit overdetermined by Motown, mm. you know, and you had the whole Phil Collins can't hurry love thing and it almost seemed to be a sort of reproach on contemporary black music and I kind of really resented that. I mean, you got that, but also in terms of the production as well, it's really, really good and you really sort of notice the stark contrast in this between that 
that kind of sort of big, slightly cliched, big boxy sort of Trevor Hornish type production that's kind of very, very prevalent elsewhere in 1985, mm. you know. So I think, again, I think that's really, really appealing. Yeah, and it's a Cure's second most sampled song. Right. Which is quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, Lady Sovereign, Afro Man, Young Blood. There's 21 different artists have used Close to Me. So Fucking there's hell. obviously something about the sort of rhythm section of it that, that appeals to people. Mm. Yeah. Um, it's interesting you saying that uh, that year might have been a particularly traumatic and terrible year for Robert. It wasn't his worst. His worst was, or, or maybe his best in some ways as well, was 83. Mm. I've got a whole section called 1983, Robert's Maddest Year, Robert's Craziest Year <laughs> in the book. Because, and, and it starts in, in late uh, 82 and carries on through to May of 84 because, it, you know, it's all the same narrative. But what happened was he got himself into three bands at the same time. Right, yes. So um, he's, he's formed this sort of um, spin-off supergroup with Steve Severin called The Glove. Mm. He's um, a member of the Banshees again, you know, for the second time. And this time he wants to make an actual album with them. So he's recording their album Hyena, right. um, as well as making the, the live album Nocturne. Uh, he's still in The Cure and they're making their album The Top. And he's doing various side projects like, you know, um, making a song with uh, Mark and the Mambas. Right. And he's touring with all these different bands. Um, when, when he was making The Top and Hyena, The Top by The Cure and Hyena by The Banshees, he was travelling back and forth between um, Eel Pie Studios and uh, in London and Genetic Studios in Reading, um, sort of doing oh, yeah. back-to-back sessions, like not sleeping, basically. Mm. He, he got on his bike and he looked for work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> he ended up having to quit the Banshees, really pissing them off, but he had to quit the Banshees mm. in uh, early 84 because his doctor basically just took one look at him and said, look, if you carry on doing this, you're going to die, mm. you know. But... On the other hand, he made loads of amazing records in that in that year. So yeah, I had a weird relationship with the Cure. I mean, as soon as they came on the radio, summer I'd just go, Ugh, and then I'd stop and think, why have I done that? This is a fucking tune. Yeah. It's odd. I'm, I, I probably pinned them down as a golf band, and I didn't like golf bands. I like golfs, but I didn't like the music they listened to. Hmm. Well, the thing is, they got it from both sides because they made these pop singles. Um, a oh, lot yeah. of goths thought, oh, they're not a real goth band. They're, they're the soft option because they make these. Pop Pop records, but it's just because they'd gone so far with the album Pornography, which they described as the ultimate fuck off record. Mm. Its most famous song, probably 100 Years, starts with the line, It doesn't matter if we all die, you know, <laughs> and it's just this sort of nihilistic record. They couldn't take that any further, so they sort of, you know, go and make Let's Go to Bed, The Walk, and The Love Cats, these sort of quite frivolous pop singles. Mm. And th- they've always flitted back and forth between those two extremes, and probably their, their best albums, you know, f- for me, things like Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss me are the albums where there's a bit of both yeah. on there but yeah if, if you were a, v- a very serious goth in, into the sisters and Bauhaus and the Nephilim and whatever else those sort of people would sneer at the cure and say, oh they're soft mm. but of course at this time and I remember because I hung around a load of goths I mean the goths goth especially- expert David, David Bogus. <laughs> I know it was bogus or not no but in America if you were goth yeah I'm a goth I'm a goth and I'm goth I'm proud of it goth to the max mm. goth all the way but in the UK it was all oh we're not goths we're not goths you know <laughs> So it'd been a bit weird, like British goths condemning the cure for betraying the spirit of goth, because of course, well, we're not goth either. You know, so you've got a fucking spider tattoo on India. You've got your hair in a. Mm-hmm. The one weird thing about goths that they were in denial about being goths. I mean, mods weren't like that. Said, oh, I'm not a mod. Mod? Maybe you don't want a fucking scooter. You know, it's just mm, very weird. Yeah. Very weird. Yeah, it's it's pretty much how you spot a goth is they all yeah. say, "I'm not a goth." Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you know, I know that's the logic of the witch's ducking stool. That if they say they're a witch, they're a witch. If they deny it, well, just duck them anyway. Mm. And if they drown, well, they're dead. You 
you know. Yep, yep. So that that's kind of how it is with gods. In snake bites. Yeah, yes. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think The Cure can't really deny being a, a gothic band, mm. even though mm. he has denied it. And other times he's admitted being this kind of figurehead. They went to the Batcave Club, for fuck's sake. They were hanging around there. They were mm. part of the whole thing. You know? yeah. um, they're definitely the gateway drug for yes. goths, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, good, that's a good way of putting it. For a lot of the youth. Definitely, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I, I was never a goth, by the way. <laughs> which means he was yes exactly <laughs> maybe the reason they weren't seen as a golf band was because they could knock out tunes yeah that's a crime banger after banger after banger they're, they're too pop mm. it wasn't just stentorian drones yeah yeah i mean really looking back on it now i equate the cure with being in student discos years after the event and the love cats coming on and all these people just getting up and dancing and me going oh yeah should i I shouldn't be here. I don't belong here. <laughs> By the way, in the early 80s, whatever, all the goths I knew did the chicken dance. Yes. Did you do the chicken dance? You know, it wasn't just, you know, maybe it's a Northern Stroke Nottingham thing. I don't know. But I've heard other people say, what the fuck's a chicken dance? Yeah, come on. Yeah, I demonstrate. Yeah. You know, of course, they think I was taking the piss, but no. Demonstrate now, David, in words to the pop craze youngsters. Well, it's just a sort of, you know, you sort of flap your arms in a kind of, well, I suppose a chicken-like way as if attempting to take flight. You know, your elbows out, you know. There we go. Um, Simple as that, yeah. kids. By the time I arrived on the goth scene, it was more about this kind of gothic two-step where you'd you know, do two steps forward and two steps back while flinging your arms <laughs> in the air in sort of at special moments in the song. You'd sort of throw these mystical shapes with your hands in the yes. air. That was the sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like people did at New Model Army gigs. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And if there was a smoke machine, all the better. Picked up by the ravers a few years later. Yeah, right, exactly. Fucking hell, the rave goth link needs <laughs> to be examined a bit more. Oh, listen... That actually happened. You, you might be joking, but you know, glow stick goth became a thing. And of course, I, it did. That, yeah, that's, that's kind of when I when I lost interest. To be honest, I, yeah. I wasn't having that. That video with the goth used dancing and someone slapped Thomas the Tank Engine <laughs> over the top. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anything else to say? No, amazingly. No, nope, <laughs> buy the book. Read more, read more yes. about it. Yeah. <laughs> so the following week, close to me, stayed at number twenty-four and would get no higher, ending a run of four singles on the bounce, getting into the top twenty. I think if we had asked the pop craze youngsters to guess mm. which chart position close to me by the Cure got to, they'd have gone way higher than mm. number twenty-four. God, yeah. 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 Because this is this is such you know it's like immortal iconic universally loved Cure song mm, yes you know, probably if you ask people to name a Cure song this is probably in the top three yeah mm. and it only got to number twenty four it's extraordinary isn't it yeah I suppose it just had a long afterlife yeah yeah however a remix of Close to Me was put out in nineteen ninety and entered the charts at number fifteen in November of that year eventually getting to number thirteen. The follow-up, a remix and re-recording of their second single, Boys Don't Cry, got to number 22 in May of 1986, and they'd have five more top 40 hits before the 80s ran out. Breakers. Talking of breakers, this next song was a breaker a couple of weeks ago. This week is at number 22 in the charts, and they're here in the top of the pop studio. It's Renee and Angela, and I'll be good. I'll be good. 
We cut back to Davis, the Bisto kid, standing in front of the wrought iron and tube lighting. There's some sort of staining on his lapel, presumably caused by one of the maidens of the studio floor laying her head on his chest, as he tells us how prescient the breaker's section is, because here comes one of its alumni, I'll Be Good, by Renee and Angela. Born in St. Louis in 1955, Angela Winbush was a part-time gospel singer who recorded a demo in 1977, which was heard by the New York DJ Gary Bird, who passed it on to his mate Stevie Wonder, who invited her to move to Los Angeles and join his backing singers, Wonderlove. While she was in LA that year, she linked up with a local singer called Renee Moore, and they began a career as a duo with a songwriting side gig for the likes of Janet Jackson, Rufus and Shaka Khan, and Odyssey. After signing a deal with Capitol Records and notching up a string of hits on the Billboard R&B chart throughout the first half of the 80s, they moved to Mercury earlier this year, and their first single on the new label, Save Your Love for Number One, was their first strike on the charts, getting to number 66 in June of this year. This is the follow-up, which entered the charts at number 54 in the first week of September and took two weeks to get to number 31, which led to an appearance in the top of the pop studio a fortnight ago and a seven-place jump to number 24. This week it's jumped another two places to number 22 and here they are again. Again. Well, chaps, I have to admit that this totally passed me by back in 1985, and it kind of did again when I watched this episode again 38 years later, mainly because of what we're seeing on stage. Mm. Rene's costume, fucking hell. Yeah. It's Purple Rain costume, isn't it? Yeah. He's taking off Prince. It's blue instead of purple, yeah. but there's no, that. Blue rain. He's got the, the rough sleeves and he's got the yeah. frothy cravat thing. Yeah. You're trying to be Prince, mate. What's going on? Yeah. Unnecessary, really, you know, because they've kind of got their own identity, yeah. If Lenny Henry was going to take off Prince yeah. with Big Ron out of EastEnders in the Chink Huntsbury role, mm. th- th- this is the outfit yeah. he's going to wear, isn't it? Yeah. Talking of Lenny Henry, it appears that Renee's massively influenced by him because in the video, he wears this shiny tiger print jacket, which was beloved of the Zimbabwean comedian Joshua Yarlong. Mm. You know, Katanga, my oh, friend. Oh, yes. Yeah, I'm yes. surprised he didn't dress up as David Bellamy for one of her videos but anyway once you've seen it you cannot take your eyes off it you know Angela might as well be bollock naked yeah. as opposed mm. to the baker foil overshirt with the sleeves hoiked up mm. which she's chosen to wear yeah with this amazing bouffant. It's like mm. a, a quiffy, girly mullet plastered with glitter on the yeah. side. This is the trouble. I was listening to this kind of stuff all the time, as I've mentioned before, but the outfits were always, always awful. I just had to avert my eyes, basically. Yeah, yeah. Rene's attention to detail of trying to mimic Prince in Purple Rain extends to violence against women, unfortunately. Yes. There yeah, is sadly, a story yeah. that he mm. hit Angela on stage, uh, which mm. was yes. kind of the beginning of the end for them as a, as a duo. Yeah. Yeah. So he's dressed like a minor member of the revolution. Um, yes. But um, you would have thought, because I was so obsessed with Prince, I'd have thought, oh, brilliant, this is for me. Mm. And, you know, I, I might have made it sound earlier as if me and my mates were just lapping up 
black American pop willy-nilly. But mm. if Cameo and Colonel Abrams were willy, then this is nilly, I'm afraid. <laughs> uh, it, it does nothing for me. I mean, for what is nominally a modern soul record, it's cold mm. and soulless to me. It's got a similar kind of register to... The, do you remember Loose Ends, that Brit funk band? Yes. They had this kind of ding ding ding, ding kind of noise that was their recurring motif. Yeah, hanging on a string. Mm. Oh, tune. Right, see, I didn't like that stuff. It just froze me out. It just sounded cold. Yeah. But I feel weird saying that, because sometimes I like chill in in a record but mm. i suppose it all feels very professional i mean you've you've spoken about their backstory they they were jobbing songwriters they're basically um a shit ashford and simpson in in mm. that respect aren't they but yeah yeah um it it didn't didn't really work for me um how about you david i mean i definitely think that this is the best ever duo whose name begins with Rene and dot dot yes. ever to appear on top of the pops <laughs> yes. and to record a song with the words save your love in the title you know i think you can yes, at least say that, that much that would have confused yeah. a lot of people Absolutely. well is it yeah. So my, my ex, Dara's mum, Roshi, she's doing this show up in Edinburgh at the festival called um, Ramalama mm. Ding Dong, just to plug it a bit. And uh, at one mm. point, she makes a reference to Black Lace, except when she does the read-through, she keeps calling him Black Grape by mistake. I mean, you know, oh, no. I mean, that's kind of understandable, but more so Black Grape. Well, imagine Black Grape doing Do the Congo. Well, exactly. It's, it's like, you know, more so Black Grape had recorded a song called Agadoo, very unlike the original yeah. Agadoo, but purely coincidental use of the same verbal motif, you know. Imagine Black Lace doing England Zyri. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, doesn't bear thinking about. Well, no, I mean, it's, I think we've got a little Colonel Abrams situation in reverse here because I did like this. I, I think she's really, really good. I mean, you know, you mentioned that she started mm. off with Wonder Love, you know, Stevie Wonder's backing singers, and, and that's a great foundation course in, like, electric funk and composition. Oh, yeah, you can't be shit if you're in Wonder Love. I mean, this is it. You know, she's connecting from right back in the day, the kind of inauguration of electricity in, in funk, you know, right through to the present day, you know, where she's getting sampled or whatever. Mm. And I think she does probably a, a great deal more props than she ever got, actually. And, and as Simon alluded to, yeah, the reason they didn't uh, continue as a duo is probably because of the uh, old Prince Boy's twatty violence. Mm. I mean, I think one of the particular th aspects I like about this is this sort of viciously viscous synth bass thing chomping all the way through it. I mean, you know, for me, mm. this is serious stuff, you know, with a decent pedigree. And I think it's the sort of thing that gets, you know, definitely gets harked back to. Like the SOS band. Mm. This is something that I like now, yeah. but back in the day, I would have just conked my nose up it because, you know, it's synths, oh, that's not proper music. Yeah, but mm. SOS band, I mean, you know, Just Be Good To Me is this all-conquering steamroller of a record. You know, this, yeah. you know absolutely yeah. just drives this into the ground, to be honest. I don't think you can even compare the two. Yeah. I mean, both Renee and Angela have synths on stage, but they might as well be an ironing board <laughs> because they remain pretty much unused for about 90% of the performance but you know what synths are like chaps you know you, you just push a button and i'll be good comes mm, out <laughs> anything else to say i don't think so no so the following week i'll be good stayed at number 22 and got no further the follow-up secret rendezvous was immediately rushed out but it only got to number 54 in november and they never troubled the chart again in 1986, the partnership began to crumble when Angela Wimbush linked up with Ronald Isler and was drafted in as a songwriter and co-producer for the Isley Brothers LP, Smooth Sailing, which led to violent disagreements between the two backstage and on stage, particularly during a gig in Cleveland, and they split up, refusing to communicate with each other without attorneys being involved. Okay, mm. Moore embarked upon a solo career and would co-write 
right jam for Michael Jackson. While Wimbush started her own solo career, continued to work with the Isley Brothers and married Ron Isley and wrote something in the way you make me feel for Stephanie Mills, which is a fucking tune. Mm. Especially the hip-hop remix. Oh, that's astonishing. Mm. And on that note, I do believe that that is enough fizzy pop excitement for one episode, Pop Grace Youngsters. So join us, why don't you, for the thrilling denouement of this episode tomorrow. Oh, and don't forget, there's a thick and meaty video playlist waiting for you at youtube.com slash chartmusictotp. Everything we talk about, everything we listen to, it's all right there just waiting for you in an audio-visual format. So, on behalf of David Stubbs and Simon Price, this is Al Needham telling you to stay (laughs) pop-crazed. Sharp music. Hey, pop craze youngster! Do you love sharp music but hate London? Do you want to see our new live show but would sooner stop at home and doss about in your pants on a Saturday? Are you going to our live show but want to see it again and again and again and again for a week or so? Well, it seems to me like you need to get booked into our live stream at this year's London Podcast Festival. See that keyboard. Use those fingers. Mash out tinyearl.com slash cmlive23, all lowercase. Step up to the pay window, lay your money down and get ready to see Team ATV Land throw down live and direct on Saturday, September the 16th. That link again, tinyearl.com slash cmlive23, all lower case. Come on, pop craze youngsters, stick that money down this G-string and watch Team ATV Land grind and thrust just for you. No wanking, though, okay?